Okay, Acts 15. So last week we finished looking at Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. So we said they started there on that gold dot, and then they go around all those red dots, and then they go home. So they went to a place called Galatia. That's where the letter to Galatians, it was written to all of those churches that Paul and Barnabas planted in all of those cities that have red dots on them. And so we, they were the first missionaries sent out by a local church, and then they plant churches in this largely Gentile region. They come home. That's what we looked at last week. We said they were gone maybe 12, 18, 24 months from their home church there in Antioch, the one with the gold dot. So let me, let me give you a bit of an overview. This is maybe 8 to 10 years of what's been happening from Acts 10 to Acts 15 is maybe 8 or 10 years. And God has been working among the Gentiles. If you look all the way back in Acts 10, remember Peter had a vision and he heard a voice. Saw the vision three times, heard the voice three times. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. And then he goes to this guy's, this Gentile's house named Cornelius, and he's preaching in the middle of his sermon. The Holy Spirit fills all of these Gentiles, and they start speaking in tongues. And it's the exact same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2 with the Jews. We have 120 Jews experience something in Acts chapter 2 that a couple of dozen Gentiles experience in Acts chapter 10. And the conclusion that Peter draws from that is... God doesn't play favorites. God's not a respecter of persons. God did not make these Gentiles come through Moses to experience the same thing we experienced. They had the exact same experience with the Holy Spirit that we did. That's God's way of saying they're in. Just like y'all are in, they're in. And Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he explains everything to everybody. He catches a little heat for eating with Gentiles and being in their house. And he explains everything and everyone is celebrating. And then this church up in Antioch gets started. That's 250 miles away from Jerusalem. It probably takes a month to to walk. So there's a pretty good distance there. And and, and that that church is, is established by some guys, just regular guys, nameless and faceless guys, who fled Jerusalem after this persecution starts in Acts chapter 8. And they establish this church in Antioch, and they begin to reach out to Gentiles. And it's met with success. And Barnabas comes. And he helps lead this church. And then Barnabas gets Paul to come and help because the church has gotten so big. And then the church decides through the leading of the Spirit to send Paul and Barnabas on that journey that we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks. And they minister primarily to Gentiles. And so that's what's been happening over the last eight to ten years. And it seems like everybody's on the same page. Everybody's good with the way the gospel is Uh, moving among Gentile populations. But there's a subgroup, a small group of folks. I I don't know how small, actually. There's a subgroup of folks, particularly in Jerusalem, who are concerned about what is happening. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Your Bible probably calls it the Council of Jerusalem or the Jerusalem Council. It's this massive meeting of the church in Antioch and Jerusalem. They come together in Jerusalem, Mother Church, to decide this massive issue of what are we supposed to do with the Gentiles. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Acts 15, starting in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. So that's what they were saying. You've got to go through Moses. Basically, you have to become a Jew. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. 
When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they had reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So that's the issue. So again, uh, Paul and Barnabas have been gone from Antioch somewhere between one and two years. I don't know this. I just wonder, maybe during that time, some guys from Jerusalem go up. They, they hear, it's, it's again, it's a long way away. It's, it takes a month to get from Jerusalem to Antioch. So a pretty big distance uh, relationally between those two churches, and probably informationally as well. There's probably a lot of things that are happening that uh, each church is not aware of what's going on with the other church just because of that gap. Paul and Barnabas are gone, and some guys, and we know from later on in Acts 15, they're unauthorized, so they weren't sent by the leadership of the Jerusalem church. I, I don't necessarily think they had bad motives. You can decide that on your own, I don't think that these guys were evil-hearted. They're, they're Christians, or Jewish Christians, they're Christians. And I don't think they were trying to necessarily stir up trouble. I think they were going to Antioch because they thought there's a, there's a gap, there's a hole in their swing, and we've got to go and help them address this issue. They are proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles. Gentiles are responding to Jesus as the Messiah, which is great, but Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish law. They've got to follow the law. It says they're the party of the Pharisee, and if the only thing we know about Pharisees is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, they're, they're not great guys. They're the, they're the primary uh, enemies or opposition to Jesus, but these guys are believers. And Pharisees actually have a, several beliefs that uh, touch with Christianity and probably made it uh, easy for them to say yes to Jesus. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in eternal life. They believe in a coming Messiah. And so there were some hopes in the hearts of the Pharisees that the gospel touched. And so it makes sense that there would be a number of Pharisees who would begin to follow Jesus as the Messiah. But the Pharisees were the most conservative group in Judaism by far. The most conservative, the most buttoned up, the most, the, the tightest group. Many of them would have the whole Old Testament memorized. A lot of them would have the entire law, Exodus, the first five books memorized. And, and they, they treasured it. They loved the law. It wasn't necessarily a burden to them. It was a huge joy for them. It was a privilege that God had given them this law. They said that this was given to Moses by God. He wrote it with his finger on these tablets of stone. How can we not honor and revere this? There is no New Testament at this point. Maybe Galatians has been written, maybe Thessalonians, but there's not much. And none of it's been compiled authoritatively to make a Bible. All you've got is the Old Testament. And these guys are going... Here are all the verses, and there's lots of them. Here are all the verses that say, if you want to follow God, then you've got to keep the law. And the sign of being part of the, the family of God is circumcision. It's, in, it's all through the Old Testament. And so that's what they've got, and that's what they love. And I think they're hearing about what's going on in Antioch, and they're saying, these guys are missing it. They're, they're accepting Jesus as their Messiah, which is great, but they're not in, fully incorporating into the family of God. They're going to be disappointed when they die. They're not going to like where they end up. I think that's what they're thinking. They're not taking on the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. They're not following the way of the covenant, which is keeping these 613 laws that are found in the Old Testament. And so they go up unauthorized, but maybe with a good heart, I think. With a good heart, they go. And they're talking to this church in Antioch and saying, y'all have got to. It's great that you're reaching out to Gentiles. You've got to give them the full story. Not just 
believing in Jesus, that's great. You've got to give them the rest of this as well. This is what it means to be in the family of God. And it's causing some problems because that's not what Barnabas and Paul told them. They'd never heard that, but they didn't know that they were supposed to do that. And Paul and Barnabas, I think, come back in town, and then it causes this disagreement. And Paul and Barnabas are going, hey, that, that hasn't been our experience. We've been to all these other cities, and we've preached the gospel, and people have responded directly to Jesus. We've never had anybody get circumcised. We've never made anybody follow the law of Moses. And I'm, I'm telling you, like their, their lives are different. They've repented of their sins. They're changing their behavior. We're seeing God heal people miraculously. So that lets us know those are signs and wonders that say God is in this. And it causes a disagreement. And they're saying this is a big C church issue. And we've got to figure this out. So they all travel the 250 miles back to Jerusalem to have this conference, this council, to figure out what are we going to do with the Gentiles. Verse 6 The apostles and elders, so that's two different groups. The apostles you know, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Thomas, Bartholomew, those guys. James has had his head cut off, so he's not in the mix anymore. Um, And we don't know how many of them are in Jerusalem. Most likely, Peter does not live in Jerusalem anymore. He He called himself an apostle to the Jews, and so he traveled around the known world at that time telling Jews that the Messiah had come. His name is Jesus. He comes back. For this council. Then you have elders who live in Jerusalem and they run the church. And this can be confusing. The lead elder's name is James. He's obviously not the guy who had his head cut off. He is Jesus' brother. He did not follow Jesus until after Jesus' resurrection. He very quickly becomes a leader of the church. And the book of James at the back of the New Testament was written by him. It was written by Jesus' brother. So when you hear the word, when you hear James, that's who you're thinking about. Jesus' brother chief elder, leader of the Jerusalem church. So the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting them, by putting on the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, and its ruins I will rebuild, I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So we have this group. It's an it's, it's a all-church meeting is what it looks like, not just leadership. It looks like everybody's there. And so there's a big discussion, and then... Peter stands up and he says, y'all know me and y'all remember this. I told you this. We've talked about this before. Eight years ago, nine years ago, ten years ago, I told y'all of what God did through me. I saw a vision. I heard a voice three times. And it said, he said, what God has said is, is clean. Don't call it impure. Don't call anything impure that God has said is clean. And I went to this guy's house, Cornelius, and I was preaching, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. They had the exact same experience that we did. 
For the longest time, you, me, us, we, our ancestor, we, we, we thought and we've been told and it's been true that the way of relating to God is following this law that Moses gave us and the sign of being in God's family is circumcision. That's just not the case anymore. The way of relating to God is through faith in Jesus and the sign that we're in relationship with God is the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us. And they got it without being circumcised and without following the law of Moses. So let's not test God. Let's not push him on this. If God has said they're okay, and by giving them the Holy Spirit, that's him saying they're okay, then let's not say that they're not. We don't want to do that. We don't want to challenge God in that way, and we don't want to undermine what he's doing in the Gentiles in that way. And so that's his firsthand account. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up, and they say, I'm wondering if they start with this. Y'all don't even know this. We've been gone for the last year, year and a half, two years. We've been traveling through... Southern Galatia, we've been going, we went to Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and everywhere we went we proclaimed the gospel. And there were some Jews who said yes and it was great. And there were tons of Gentiles who also said yes. And it was incredible. The gospel was very well received among the Gentiles. God worked miracles. Last week we looked at a guy who'd been crippled his whole life who gets up and walks just like that when he hears the good news. And, he, and, and Paul and Barnabas are able to tell story after story from the course of, or, or from their time on the road. And it says the people are silent. They're dialed in, wrapped. This is, they don't know. How would they know? They're 250 miles at least away. How would they know? And so they're getting the details, this kind of boots on the ground report. This is what God has been doing recently. You heard what he did 10 years ago from Peter. You knew that. Here's what he's doing now. And I'm sure that there were converts between Peter and Paul. There was time where people had come to know the Lord. And Peter's already gone on his travels. And maybe they didn't know that much about Cornelius. And maybe some of the guys that did know, they died in the interim. And so for whatever reason, there seems to be a a bit of fuzziness around what God is doing. And so there's some clarity here. Eyewitness testimony from three different people. And then James. And if you read the book of James, he is about as Jewish as you can be. And he's one of theirs, and they know him, and they respect him, and he's their leader. And he says, let me give you some scriptural foundation here. From the book of Amos, this was predicted. This was prophesied. God has always had said, I'm going to bring people out of those nations into relationship with me. And we're getting to experience that now. And we're hearing testimony from Peter and from Paul and from Barnabas that says, now is the time that this prophecy in Amos is being fulfilled. And it's just one of many in the Old Testament that James could use to say God hasn't abandoned the Gentiles and he's going to reach them as well. And then we pick up in verse 20. It is my judgment, therefore. Now, when you hear that, you can hear that multiple ways as James kind of banging the gavel and saying, thus declares the judge. Or I don't know that he's doing that. Is he speaking for the apostles and elders? Maybe. Is he saying, this is what I think, that's kind of, that's what I think. I think he's saying, here's my opinion on the matter. He is one who has authority and is in authority. But it seems that the decision is a bit, it's collective, is what it seems like. There's no vote, but it seems like there's a consensus around the decision. So, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city 
from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They they chose Judas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings, we've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So, brilliant, brilliant decision these guys come up with. It can be a bit confusing Because he says, we're not going to make it hard for you. And then he gives them four rules. And the rules are not necessarily the ones that we would give. If we were going to give rules, at least three of those, we we wouldn't put in the list. Those things are called the apostolic decrees. And they honestly, to us, seem a bit silly. Why, out of everything that you could say, why would you say, don't eat meat that's been strangled? So, there's two things going on. You'll see it up on the screen. It's my way of trying to uh, diagram the passage. You have two things going on. James is addressing two questions. First, so this is the whole church. They're addressing two questions. First, what about salvation? So both of these are relational questions, one towards God and one towards Jewish Christians. So James is saying to to these Gentile Christians, when it comes to your relationship with God, we're not adding anything. We're not going to trouble you. We're not going to burden you. You're repenting and turning to Jesus. You're putting your faith in him, and we're not going to add anything else to the mix. That's all you need. And so that's a word for us when it comes when we're thinking about people and people who need Jesus. We don't need to put, we don't need to add anything to the mix. Are you trusting him? Are you believing in him? That's, that's the requirement. That's the condition. And that's it. There's nothing else added to him. There's nothing else added. And we have this tendency to want to do that. We want to help people start scrubbing themselves clean and making better choices. And we want to do that. And it makes us nervous to think, well, someone's going to follow Jesus, but they're not going to know all these things that it means to be a Christian. And what James says is we're not doing that to y'all. And what Peter says is we're not going to put a yoke on your neck that we couldn't bear. And so for us to have, to, to have faith, to trust the Holy Spirit living within someone. The Holy Spirit's the one who conforms us into the image of Jesus. And it's not just silly, it's wrong for us to expect someone who has not yet received the Holy Spirit to be conformed into the image of Jesus. The one who does the work is not within them yet. There's no cleaning up on the front end. Do you believe in him? That's the only requirement. And James says, we're not going to put anything else on you. However, in this time particularly, this became less and less so through the years. We've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are trying to live together. And they have radically different lifestyles. And so what James says, again, in the name of relationship, for the sake of unity, for the sake of relationship, for the sake of fellowship, here are four things that I want y'all to 
observe four things that we want y'all to follow, four rules, four decrees, four guidelines, whatever you want to say. It has nothing to do with salvation. We're not adding anything to you on that. It has everything to do with unity in the body of Christ because we have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are trying to live together. For thousands of years, Jewish Christians have said, this is the way you eat and this is what you can eat. And Gentile Christians don't follow any of that. You have these, this, this massive Jewish heritage that's coming into the picture. Idolatry. That breaks one of the top ten. We don't want to be involved in anything that has anything to do with idolatry. There are these, there's, a, there's a temple to Zeus. And you bring your bull and you take it to the temple, to uh, the Zeus's temple, and they sacrifice it. And they don't use all of the meat in that ceremony. And so that meat winds up at Kroger. And when you go to buy a hamburger to invite me over for a cookout, you very well could be buying hamburger meat that was sacrificed to Zeus, and I can't have anything to do with that. Because God said, avoid idolatry. Like the plague, run away from it. And so what James says is, don't, don't serve meat. Don't eat meat, don't serve meat. That, was, that had any tie into one of these pagan temples. It offends the Jews. It'll break relationship. If you go back and read, particularly in Leviticus, all of these rules around blood, the life is in the blood. And so Jews had very particular ways. Here's how you kill an animal. And here's how you make sure all the blood is drained out of the animal. You don't drink blood and you don't eat meat that has blood in it. So, so James says, if y'all are going to eat together and you can't have a relationship with one another, if you're not eating together, it's not just that you can't serve meat that was connected to an idol temple, not, no blood on the table at all, and the meat that you do serve, it can't come from an animal that was strangled because it still has the blood in it. You didn't slit its throat and let it drain. All of those things are hugely um, the big taboos for the Jews. And so for the sake of relationship, for the sake of fellowship, Gentiles, you mark those three things off your list. Sexual immorality, the sexual practices of Jews and Gentiles were radically different, and I don't want to talk about any of that. So they said, you, you agree with the Jews on this. That's another thing that can break relationship if we're not agreeing on those kinds of things. So in the name of unity in the body, because we have these two very different cultures that are coming together under the banner of Jesus, Jews, you don't add anything to the Gentiles. You don't try to make them get circumcised, and you don't tell them to follow one of those 613 laws. They don't have to do it. Gentiles, you willingly follow these four guidelines in order to not offend the Jews so y'all can actually develop and maintain relationships. Brilliant. So for the sake of the mission, Jews, don't put, don't, don't put any roadblocks up to the gospel. There's one stumbling block, it's Jesus, nothing else. If people can say yes to Jesus, they can accept the reality of the cross, the cross is called a scandal. They can accept that, then you don't add anything else to the mix. We want to see the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And he says to the Gentiles, for the sake of relationship, here are the things that you're doing. Both groups give a little bit. One for the sake of mission, one for the sake of relationship. It's brilliant what the Holy Spirit speaks through these guys in this council, and it's solidified. Let's send a letter 
Last time it was confusing because some guys went from the Jerusalem church and they weren't really supposed to, they, they either weren't supposed to go or they said things they weren't supposed to say, but either way it created confusion. So everybody knows Paul and Barnabas and Antioch, and we know Judas and Silas, and so let's let those four go, and we've got two representatives from each church, and we're going to write this down, and we're going to make sure it's clear. Maybe they thought it was for the last eight or ten years, but it wasn't, so we're going to make this clear. This This is what we're doing as a church. This is what it means to follow Jesus, and this is what it means for us to be in relationship with one another. So they've taken something that could have been divisive, and they've brought unity from it, something that was unclear, and they brought clarity. And so that's what's going on here in Acts 15. And you're going, that's great. Doesn't connect to me. You probably don't know if there's blood in your meat or not. And if there is, you probably honestly don't care a whole lot. And it's probably not causing anybody to um, say no to Jesus. I didn't say this. Let me wrap back. There's that confusing sentence, for the law of Moses is preached Every in every you know in every city every Sabbath and it's like well why is he saying that why for because so here are the four things that you're supposed to do because the law of Moses is being preached that may not make sense I think you can look at that two ways and we've talked about it roundaboutly but to be direct to the Jewish Christians he's saying y'all don't need to worry about whether or not the Gentiles are going to know the law the synag- the the, God, the the law of Moses is preached in synagogues all over the known world every Saturday. They can go anytime and they can hear the law of Moses. You don't need to worry about that. This law that's so precious to you, all of these people can still be exposed to. And what he's saying to the Gentile Christians, I think, is they're Jews in every city. And we want them to hear the gospel. And we don't want them to reject Jesus because they don't like the food you're eating. Because that's silly. For somebody to miss out on Jesus as the Messiah because they can't sit at the table with you. Because you won't adopt your... um, dinner practices in a way that makes it easier for them to be a part of the conversation. So I think that's what's going on with that sentence. So again, for us, I thought of two things. You may think of something else. One, decision-making process. And you see it here in Acts 15. You've got these three, we'll call them data points, that all coalesce around one decision. You have the church or other Christians. The decision is not made in a vacuum. I don't think James went up on a mountain and God said, here's what you're going to do. There was discussion. You had all the apostles and elders, and then it says the whole church set aside Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas. There's a communal, a community aspect, corporate aspect to what's going on. You have personal experience, what people are, are witnessing God doing. That's Peter's testimony and Paul's testimony and Barnabas' testimony. They're saying, here's what God is actually doing now among us and what God is doing through us. And we're eyewitnesses to that. And then you have scripture. James says, here's what Amos says about this. Here's what one of the Old Testament prophets says. So you have the church and you have the spirit and you have the word all pointing in the same direction. And I think that's why the decision one was so strong and why everybody in general got on board with it. There's a group that continues to buck a little bit, but in general, everybody gets on board with this decision. So for us, thinking about decision-making process, you may be at a fork in the road. These are the three things you want to be looking for, kind of your data points, uh, if you will. We're going to have to move through these really quick. So you'll, if this, one of these is a struggle for you, come grab me and we can talk about it. First, the Bible. Think of the Bible as a map. There's specific commands 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. 
If you're thinking, I want to ask her out, he asked me out. One of your first questions, does that person love Jesus? If the answer is no, then your answer is no, no. You don't want to be yoked together with someone with a different value system. doesn't matter how cute they are. It doesn't. Values. Some of you, business. Some of us, we think about that personally. What about in business? You don't want to be yoked together with someone who has a different value system from you. Think of all of the decisions that you make together with a partner in business. You don't want to be yoked together with someone who has a different value system than you. General. Some things are not, it's not that cut and dried where the Bible says this. I'm looking at Luke Mosley back there. He's deciding on college. You haven't decided yet, have you? He hasn't decided yet. The Bible is not going to tell Luke where to go to college, but the Bible does say honor your parents. And so that's a general thing, and he may be thinking about that. All right, what do mom and dad have to say about this on some level? Let me figure that out. Let me put that into the mix. For many of us, we see the Bible as irrelevant and impractical. It speaks about spiritual matters, but it's not going to help me on Tuesday. It's not true. It's amazing to think that a book written thousands of years ago in languages none of us know, in countries none of us have been to, can somehow speak with clarity to people of all generations across all cultures. It's a miracle that God does that. And so we need to dig in. But it's hard for some of us. We don't even know where to start. We just Google it. What does the Bible say about? It's better than nothing. But there's a lot better than that, too. We don't have time to dig too much into that. But if you struggle thinking about the Bible as, an, as a data point on the decisions that you're making, if you struggle thinking about the Bible actually having something to say about your decisions, not just your spiritual decisions, your life decisions, if that's a struggle for you, let's talk about it. Let's figure out how to help you dig in. Second one we see, the Holy Spirit. The Bible's a map. The Holy Spirit's a compass. We get this inner witness, this sense of peace. Many of you have experienced that. It's just settled when you make the decision. It's like, yeah, this is, this is what he wants for me. There's no anxiety. There's not worry. There's not fear. You're not running things over in your mind. It's, this, is, this is it. There's external activity. That's what Paul and Barnabas and Peter are talking about. Here are all the things that we saw with our eyes God do. And people talk about open doors. And, you know, I was, I was wondering if this is the right place for me. And, you know, I got accepted. And so that's an open door. And I got rejected from every other place. And so that helps me know this is the direction God is leading me. Or, or kind of quote-unquote coincidences that we see. You're wondering about something and somebody calls you. They answer the question before you even asked it. And you can probably all list some things like that that happen in your life. And that's the way the Holy Spirit can guide us and, and direct us. The issue for many of us is we're not paying attention. The Holy Spirit rarely signs his work. And so if we're not paying attention, we can miss him. Many of us don't believe that God speaks to us. He may speak to other people, but he doesn't speak to us. And so our lack of belief causes us to miss so many of the ways that he wants to lead and guide us and direct us. So you have a map, you have a compass, and you also have people who are walking with you, I hope. No one person has the full mind of God, period. He is not, and you think it's my life. It, yes, and he's not going to tell you everything you need to know about it. He has grafted you into a body. He's placed you into a family, and he's made it so we need one another. That's not very American, but it's very kingdom. 
We need each other. No one has the full mind of God. Read 1 Corinthians 12. None of us are every part of the body. If you're making major decisions and you're not getting any input from, we'll call it the church, that's not this. You don't need to come in here and ask us to take a vote on decisions in your life. But if you're not regularly dialoguing with people who love God and love you both, they need to love God and love you. If you're not regularly including those people in your life decisions, you're missing one of the primary streams through which God wants to lead you and guide you and direct you. You're cutting yourself off. And and it's, I would say, stupid. It is. For many of us, it's prideful. We're individualistic. Some of us are private. We don't want other people involved. We say that's none of your business. We don't get community, really. We don't get family on a lot of levels. I want to encourage you, if this is a struggle for you, if you're saying, I don't have anybody, you don't have to have 12 somebodies. You've got to have three somebodies, two somebodies, four somebodies. If you don't have two or three or four who love God and love you, who you're saying, this is what I'm thinking about. These are the things that I'm trying to decide between. If you're not doing that, you're missing one of the primary ways that God wants to speak to you. And so this is what you're looking for. It's this sweet spot where all three of those things overlap. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's what James says in his letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us. That's very subjective. What does it mean to seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us? And that's why I've tried to give you three concrete handholds where the Bible and the Holy Spirit and and the church, where all of those things are in agreement, you could say, yes, that seems right. It seems good. There's an inner sense of peace and the circumstances externally are kind of lining up and it agrees with what God has revealed in the word and the people who love you are saying yes this is it when those things start coming together you can have a strong sense this is the Lord speaking and guiding and directing me last thing we have very little time for this so I'll just hit the highlights One of the things I was thinking about as I read this verse was this idea of living in community. And many of us are trying to figure out what does it look like to live in relationship with other people when we in disjointed and disconnected houses and commuting and all the different things of suburban life that um, work against community. And we're trying to figure that part out. And you see a little bit here. A great chapter is Romans 14. We don't have time. To read it, but read Romans 14, and Paul is very specific on this is what, here's some practical things on living life together. And the key principle is a stumbling block principle, which is don't, don't be a stumbling block. That's the principle. Don't do that. Don't be someone who trips other people up. For many of us, we judge others based on our own personal convictions. And that's why we have 26,000 denominations in North America. It's because we do that. We're, not even a, we're independent. We're not even a part of a denomination. That's how much we have sectioned ourselves off in some ways. We judge others based on our personal convictions. Some of you are prophets. And so for you, you say there's no such thing as a personal conviction. It's all black and white. You need to have a little bit of humility. If there's genuine disagreement in the body of Christ then there's probably a reason for that. Paul talks about disputable matters, opinions, gray areas. And again, for some of you who are prophets, there is no such thing as gray. That's a cuss word for you. But that's not true. There are people who love God, and there are people who know the word, 
And they can legitimately disagree with you about some, some particular lifestyle things. And when it comes to living together in community, one of the things that divides us the most or divides us the, the quickest is judging others based on personal convictions in matters that, that are disputable, in matters that are gray. Paul says, don't do that. Accept the one who's weak. So um, let's say there's somebody among us who doesn't necessarily love physical contact. And let's say there are others among us who would say, hugging, it's this overflow of the love that I have for people. It's hospitable. It's welcoming. It's friendship. The Bible says to give each other a holy kiss. And you're, you're backing up just by giving a hug. And so let's say we're supposed to live with each other, these two theoretical people. Those of you who are absolutely convinced that hugging is the way to go, you need to honor those who would say, maybe not so much. Definitely not with both arms. And my, not my, theoretically, this theoretical person doesn't, not, doesn't judge you for invading personal space. Not reading nonverbal cues very well. This is a nonverbal cue. My hand, if this person's hands are in their pocket, that may be an indication. This is not a lever for you to pull me in. It's a hand for you to shake. So anyway, Paul says, you got to do that. You got to figure that out. Weak conscience, don't judge strong conscience. Strong conscience, don't cause weak conscience to violate. Don't cause them to violate their conscience. It's pushing them into sin. Jesus said, you don't want to do that. Anything we can't do in faith is a sin, and it is better for a millstone to be tied around your neck than to cause one of his people to sin. So don't do that. Drinking, that's an easy one. Everybody under the Christian umbrella is going to say, don't get drunk. That's Ephesians 5. But within the Christian tent, there are people who say, you're free. You can have a margarita with your nachos. And there are people who would say, no, absolutely not. You can never touch a drop of alcohol. That's a disputable matter. And for some of you are going, it's not. It is. It is. That, that, it is. And so those who would say you can't, don't judge people who do. And people who do, don't do it in front of people who say you can't. We want to mutually edify, Romans 14, 19. That's the goal, peace and mutual edification. So those of you who have freedom, don't use your freedom to cause another to stumble. Those of you who would say, I'm not sure about that, don't step into it. You can't do it in faith, and don't judge those who can. That's how we have to live together. And you can think of a thousand issues. Borrowing money, that's one. Disciplining children, that's one. How you relate to your adult parents. What does it mean to honor your parents even as you're an adult? That's one. And they're, those are they're disputable matters. There's opinion. There's gray. People who love God, spirit-led people, know the Bible, disagree. And we don't want to form... Our, my, I don't want to judge you based on my convictions. I've got to figure out how to be generous enough to allow you to follow the Holy Spirit as well. And so in a moment of 
honesty, look back. How many broken relationships are there? If in a moment of clarity, look back and say, do I tend to walk away from people? Do I tend to cut people off? Do I tend to shut people down? Do I break relationship over disputable matters? If you do, you need to repent. And begin, it's not about you changing your convictions at all. It's about you choosing love over being right. That's what you're doing. You're, you're willing to recognize this isn't, this isn't over things that are clear. We're not debating whether or not you can sleep with your girlfriend. You can't. The Bible's clear on that. We're talking about whether or not you can spank your kids or those types of things. Things that are disputable. And, and again, and you, you know what those are. Just because it's settled in your own heart doesn't mean that it's settled from the Bible and the church and the spirit. Does that make sense? And so you don't want to judge others on that. Let's pray. We've got two minutes. Ministry teams, if y'all come forward, we'll pray about any, we'll pray for you about anything. Three groups I want to pray for specifically if you're at a decision point. Relocation, we want to pray for you. Fork in the road with your children, maybe even your adult children, we want to pray for you. Considering a medical procedure, if any of you are considering a medical procedure, we want to pray for you about that. So I'm just going to Pray briefly, and y'all can respond however you want. God, I pray for those who are facing a decision. I pray they would know that sweet spot. Your word and your spirit and your people would all line up. And God, I pray that you would teach us, as much as it depends on us, to live at peace with others. That we, at least as a small church, could be a model to the broader community. This is what it looks like to live in community. This is what it looks like to be family. It doesn't mean we all agree about everything. It means we choose to love. Our lives are wrapped around the center, which is Jesus, and we don't draw hard fences on things that you don't draw hard fences around. So would you give us grace in that? And for many of us, even saying that makes us nervous about people walking uh, down a bad road. But will we trust your spirit enough in ourselves and in others? to allow you to lead and guide and direct. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand, please. Bo will dismiss us in about three minutes.